continuing our series this summer in practicing prayer with the Psalms, and we're going to take a portion of Psalm 119. Uh, I recognize that Psalm 119 could be its own sermon series in and of itself, but uh, we're just going to take a portion of it this morning. So if you would turn there, uh, you'll also find uh, it printed in your uh, worship program as well. We're going to look at verses 32 through 49. Um, as we consider uh, meditating on God's Word. Now, we alluded to it a little bit last week as we read Psalm 1. Um, you'll remember that the opening, uh, the opening lines of Psalm 1 is, uh, Blessed is the one um, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the, in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. So that was, we said last week, was kind of an entry into a life with God, a life of prayer, um, was this act of meditation. And so for the next couple of weeks, I want to look at this discipline of meditation and why it's so incredibly important. So Psalm 119, verses 32 through 49, let's stand together as we hear God's word. In verse 32, the psalmist writes, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, you invite us to be still and know that you are God. You invite us to come and to shout the glories of your name. You invite us to come and to bear our hearts before you, to be fully known by you, not so that we would be put to shame, but so that we may live. Because no one loves us like you do. No one has sought after us like you have. No one has given so much, so gladly and freely like you have. 
and you've done it because you love us. So today, would we hear your love? Would we hear your love for us, and would, would we respond in kind? Father, forgive the one who preaches his sins, for they are many. They are many. Our desire is that we would see Jesus in him only. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Be seated. I can always tell when I'm getting sick because I'll get a fever dream. You ever had fever dreams before? Yeah, some of you know what I'm talking about. It's a for me, it ends up being like a two or three minute snapshot of, of, a, of a picture or an idea or a sequence of something that just repeats over and over and over again all night long. Um, I've had versions of this happen before, not when I'm sick, but just, uh, have you ever had a song get stuck in your head? I had a song stuck in my head for two weeks. No, I'm not telling you what one it was. Jackie, you'll start singing it and get me stuck in another cycle. I asked some friends of mine to come up with a really easy, kind of accessible definition of what meditation is. Because you hear meditation talked about and you think, oh, wow, that sounds great. I would love to just kind of clear my mind and breathe deeply and and just relax. And that's cool. That's not what the Bible's talking about. Um, when you think about meditation, when you think about what it is to meditate on God's word, it's kind of like, but not in an annoying way, getting a song stuck in your head. It's just there over and over and over again. And it's not there just because it's there, but it's there because we're, we're chewing on it. We're, we're ingesting it. It's doing something to us and it's going to evoke a response from us. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to think a little bit about meditation, about what it is, why we should do it. And ultimately, what are some good things to meditate on? The what are some good things to meditate on will be more of what we will talk about next week. But what I want to show us from the scriptures this morning is is why we need meditation in our lives as a discipline. Now, there has been some research that um, if you carry one of these things around, um, it doesn't have to be made by a rotten fruit company. It could be made by um, another company um, that steals rotten fruit companies' patents. I don't know. Um, if you have one of those devices, the studies are beginning to show that our attention spans are changing. No longer are we able to sit and contemplate without the need for distraction. The next time you're at a food court in a mall or in a restaurant, observing even families just sharing a meal together, observe how many times the phones are out. Now, technology is great. This is not a technology-bashing sermon. What I'm saying is that um, to to make the argument that we need the discipline of meditation in our lives is perhaps um, 
more important now than it has been in a while because there is now no shortage of things vying for yours and my attention, right? There's no shortage of things that are seeking to grab our attention and fix our eyes on something. So I want to look at this psalm and some of the ways that it instructs us about how we meditate on the Word of God and how we apply it down deep into our lives. Because here's the bottom line. We all desire freedom, right? We all desire to be freed from uh, anxiety and peril and uncertainty and all of these other things that so beset us. So what happens is we set our sights, we set our gaze, we look at the thing that we think is going to provide us that freedom, and then we trust that our hearts are telling us the truth, that we really should want that thing. So here's the outline. Ready? It's a little bit pessimistic, but you'll be okay. One, your heart is not a good tour guide of what you should desire. Secondly, your eyes are constantly distracted. Third, the freedom that you desire, apart from God's grace, the freedom that you desire is actually bondage. Okay? So that's what we're going to talk about. Again, this is the why of meditation. Why do we need these things? We need, we need to meditate on God's word. We need God's word to get stuck in our heads and start reshaping um, the, the nooks and crannies of our hearts um, because if left alone, if left to our own devices, our hearts make terrible cruise guides. Are, they are not equipped. They are not built to tell us what we should really desire and what we should really want. Our eyes are constantly distracted and the freedom that we really think that we're after is nothing more than bondage. Okay? So let's dive in. First thing, if you look at the beginning part of the section of Psalm 119 that I read, really the whole of Psalm 119 is a love letter, right? Psalm 119 is a love letter to the Word of God. It is a love letter just just flowing over with language that invites us to delight in the Word of God. There's not a single verse that goes by that doesn't in some way, shape, or form evoke great delight at what the Word of God is able to do. Specifically, though, in the part that we read, I want you to see this. Look at what it says. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart, right? So there's something that has to be done to us first. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. What's the commonality there in those verses? All of the language there in those verses is dependent language. It is dependent language. In other words, you are not actually capable of opening your Bible and setting down and studying it and saying, yes, I am going to, I am going to desire this all on my own. It is not going to happen. Your heart makes a terrible cruise guide. Absolutely terrible. Your heart 
Um, your heart beats with disordered desire. That does not mean that the things that you want are necessarily bad. It just means that the, that the way that you say that you're going to be satisfied is not how you were designed to be satisfied. Why? We, were, we were made, for instance, we were made to enjoy abundant food, to delight in the riches and lavishness of God's creation. Well, what do we do? We make food an end. And we feed ourselves because we're bored and because we're sad. Food becomes medicine, not fuel. We were made to work hard, right? We were made to, with gifts and talents and abilities, with hands that can produce amazing things, with, with minds that can conceive of fantastic things. And what do we do? We destroy one another. We work for selfish gain. We live with me-first hearts that say, no, I'm, what I'm really about is whatever is going to make me the happiest, the most comfortable, and the most safe. What the psalmist is saying is that he knows something about his heart that we need to hear as well. That his heart is, uh, incredibly, uh, is incredibly disordered. His heart is not designed to actually um, be able to innately, to naturally lead him towards what would ultimately satisfy him. Because the fact of the matter is, your heart is not a blank slate that's just open to be molded as soon as you sit down and start looking at God's word. What's happening is your heart is always being molded all the time and in every way, every single day. The question is not, is your heart being molded? But instead, what exactly is your heart being molded by today? So all the petitions that we see here is not the, the psalmist saying, yes, okay, Christian, day one, I'm going to be a better Christian. What the psalmist is saying is first a posture of dependence and saying, I have no idea how to do this. I can't possibly do this unless God, you do something first in me. The reason that, that all of us have already given our hearts over to something or someone else is because our hearts were never designed to be their own director. You're not able to do it. It's not possible. The psalmist asks in verse 34, look at what it says. He says, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. What the psalmist is asking for is um, the, the Hebrew understanding of the heart is, is not just the thing that beats in your chest that pumps blood to your body. The Hebrew understanding of the heart is something that is directing your thoughts, your emotions, your deep desires, and your choices. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the central operating system of your entire being. So when the psalmist says um, that I may love you, that I may obey you with your, my whole heart, he's not just saying that um, I would give it 110%. What he's saying is um, that, that everything that I think about, everything that I feel, everything that I ultimately and deeply desire, and thus the choices that flow out of all those things, that all of those things would work harmoniously and be connected and woven into the heartbeat of God, that I may obey you with my whole heart. So this is where we really begin to think about meditation, to think about what it means to get the truth of the word of God deep down into our lives. To meditate on God's word is first to get its truth into us, to understand what it's saying. But it's not, a, 
See, meditation is not Bible study, right? That's one of the distinctions that we need to make. Meditation is not Bible study. Bible study is designed to understand it, to study the text, to understand its original intent and its meaning and what it's after. To meditate on something is to actually to actually begin to see it do something to you. Now that you understand what it says, to meditate on it is to begin the process of the so what. What does this mean for me now? How do I... Um, Uh, worship God because of something I've discovered? Or how do I repent towards God over something that he's revealed in me? It's the so what of the scriptures, not just a, well, that's nice. That's, That's a lovely thing that it says, but it's now getting it inside of you so that it would change you. One of the ways that you can do this is just by slowing down and dwelling on a passage. I don't I don't necessarily mind Bible reading plans because I think that it's a good thing to read through the whole of the scriptures. But when you think that that's achieving for you what we're talking about here when you talk about meditating and praying the word of God, getting into it and, and, and having it do work inside of you, they're not necessarily the same. Verse 36, look at what it says. He says, incline my heart, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Um, Selfish gain is, uh, this is language of idolatry. This is, um, if you look at Jonah chapter two, um, the prayer that he prays when he's sitting inside the digestive tract of a fish um, was um, a pretty flowery sounding prayer. In Jonah 2, he says uh, this. He says, those that cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Those that cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Um, inside, uh, uh, inside of all of us is a heart that is constantly churning out new things to be distracted by, new things to set our affections on. An idol is anything that you take and make an ultimate thing in your life. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. It doesn't have to be a golden statue. Uh, It doesn't have to be uh, a picture of another god or another deity. An idol is simply something that you make an ultimate thing in your life. It could be a good thing. It could be your family. It could be your job. It could be your identity. It could be your social media presence. It could be unhealthy things. It could be... um, It could, be, it could be success no matter the cost to yourself or others. An idol is anything. It's a good thing that you make an ultimate thing. And here the, the, the psalmist is saying, um, incline my heart to your testimonies and, and not to selfish gain. The fact of the matter is we are not qualified to know what our hearts need and what they don't need. Um, in fact, if you listen to the words of the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah seventeen nine, he says this. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So basically, if someone gives you the advice that you should follow your heart, you should question your friendship with them. They are not giving you good advice. At all. Your heart's the last thing you should be listening to when it comes to where you should be going. The the Bible says that our hearts are, in fact, actively trying to deceive us every single day. 
So if you think that your heart, your emotions, the way you feel, what you want, what you desire is really going to ultimately be your north star, your mooring point on the map, your orientation point in the storm to tell you where you are and where you're going, friends, be careful. Because the Bible says something different. Instead of it saying that our hearts are really delightful and good and that we should just follow our hearts and follow our dreams, what the Bible actually says is your heart's trying to deceive you and you need help. That's why the psalmist says, teach me, guide me, instruct me, do something to me. Because if left to my own devices, I'm stuck. So that's the reason, uh, the, the first reason that we need help, um, because without it, we're going to be, um, we're going to be in a bad spot. So when we place our ultimate hope in something, um, our hearts are naturally going to, going to pursue that. One time I was, um, at a conference in Chicago, um, I learned several valuable lessons about going to conferences in Chicago, which is one, there's no reason to rent a car. None. Public transit is a thing, and driving in Chicago is frightening. Secondly, and this was a very important lesson, um, GPS modules in your car to get you from point A to point B are great, except when the skyscrapers are so tall that a GPS signal can't get to it, and your GPS does a version of, I don't know, See, these are, this is our hearts, folks. We think that we've got um, a perfectly attuned GPS system to where, who we are, who we should be, and where we're going. And the psalmist says, no, you don't. The Bible says, no, you don't. You can't even begin to get on the map. Here's the second thing that it says. Not only are our hearts really bad cruise directors, really bad, really bad tour guides, secondly, our eyes get distracted. Um, so what's happening in verse 37? In verse 37, it says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways, okay? So uh, another definition of idolatry uh, I found helpful is by a guy named uh, Dr. G.K. Beale. This is what he says. It's, got a, it's alliteration. It's got a lot of R's, which makes preachers really happy. Like we, there's a whole class in alliteration. It's fantastic. He says, that which you revere, you resemble either for ruin or for restoration. Try that one more time. That which you revere, you resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. You get it? Where you set your eyes, where you set your heart, you can ultimately start to look like that thing. What the psalmist is saying when he says, turn my eyes. So now again, that's dependent. That's asking for help. He's saying, turn my eyes to your testimonies. Sorry, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. What he's saying there is the things that I'm looking at presently are actually things that are not giving me life. What I need help then is for you to turn my eyes to something that will actually give me life. I love what we said in our prayer of confession this morning. 
We have not set our eyes on the unseen eternal things, but set them time and time again on transient things, things we hope will save us, things we hope will give us joy, things to keep us from becoming bored. Look at that. That which you revere, you resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. We've set our eyes on worthless things. And he, um, he's asking, the psalmist is asking, and said that, he, that, that God would give us life in his ways. Our eyes are constantly distracted. We're constantly looking for things that would give us life, that would give us hope, that would give us joy and meaning and satisfaction. Um, Ed Welch, I think it's Ed Welch, when people are making God as small, is, is that Ed or is that another one? I'm, so there's a great book out there uh, by uh, a counselor called When People Are Making God as Small. And it's a, a book dealing with the, um, the nature of how we deal with people, uh, the need for approval of people. I am a, I'm not only a, a client, but I'm also the president of the I Need Approval from People Club. It's a fantastic club. Unless you think it's not, then we can change it because I want you to like me. The reason that a lot of times in my life, people got the wrong impression of me is because um, I was afraid that they would see me as weak and a failure. And so I overcompensated. I overcompensated and tried to look um, smart like I had all the answers, like I had it all together, like I was super confident and competent. And it came across as arrogant. And I go, if you only knew me, you'd know I'm not arrogant at all. I don't think I have my entire life together. I'm lucky if the whole thing holds together with the duct tape and the bubble gum. But because I valued how people looked at me and how it felt when they said nice things about me. I said, I can't actually be me. I have to be what they want me to be. Because at that moment, I had set my eyes not on how my heavenly father sees me, but how you see me and they see me and most importantly, all the bullies and all the playground taunters and all of the ones that said I was a screw-up. It mattered how they saw me, even though none of them were standing anywhere near me. You see, for us, it's easy it's easy to be uh, distracted. It's easy to be caught up with what I think is right in the moment. It's easy to all of a sudden think that I'm pursuing a right thing, and all of a sudden that right thing is sucking all the life away from me. See, I'm not saying that once you get your eyes set, that's it, you're done. This is not the old rotisserie infomercial of set it and forget it. It's a daily battle where you're constantly having your eyes redirected. Because if you're not careful, 
you'll find yourself driving into a ditch or heading headlong towards things that actually won't give you life, that'll take life from you. It may not be how people see you. It may be something else. Maybe a hobby that you're good at. Or it may be how you're filling your life with distractions because you don't want to actually deal with all the sadness going on. Our eyes constantly get fixated on the next thing and they're distracted and it's terrible. Because it leads to the third point. We think that all the stuff that we're doing is going to lead us to finally being free. Do you understand that the reason that I wanted people to see me as confident and competent and put together was because I thought that if I finally had the affirmation of people, I'd be free. Except I wasn't. All it led to was more drama, more performance, more putting on fronts, more watching my step at every turn, more eviscerating myself if I made one mistake, more turning on myself and saying, how could you? More not living life at all because I was afraid that if I tried to do something and failed, it would be confirmed to the world and me that I'm a failure. Because the freedom that I sought wasn't freedom at all. It was bondage. Look at it. Freedom, when you think about freedom, popularly conceived, right? When you think about freedom, popularly conceived, freedom is freedom from something. We're getting ready to celebrate uh, Independence Day, July the 4th. What is that? Freedom from uh, a, a, a tyranny. Freedom from a crown. Freedom from a king. Freedom from. The problem is that's not actually what the Bible talks about when it talks about freedom. There's a sense in which it is. But we see freedom as ultimately us um, having the final say over what's right and wrong, life-giving and life-taking, as long as we don't have constraint on our lives, we're free, so we say. So when you read verses 41 through 49, it doesn't sound much like freedom. Look at what he says in verse 43. He says, my hope is in your rules. That doesn't sound like freedom. Verse 44, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. Nope, doesn't sound like freedom either. Uh, Let's see, verse 47, um, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Nope, that doesn't sound like freedom either. So what's happening here? Um, the, Bible is, uh, the Bible is full of, uh, of controversial, at least they sound very controversial to us, uh, ideas and truths, but perhaps none more so than this. Um, what we perceive as freedom is actually bondage. It's slavery. It's a death sentence. What, what brings life, conversely then, what brings life is when our lives are being formed and patterned after the word of God. How is that possible? Um, I especially want you to see verse 45. Look at what he says. 
In verse 45, he says, I'll start in verse 44 since it's being in the sentence. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. Now, walking in a, um, in a wide place is a Hebrew metaphor for freedom, okay? So let me give you uh, an illustration that I read from one author this week. He said it this way. Um, imagine that you're walking on a narrow little path. On your left is a sheer wall of rock, and on your right is a thousand foot drop. Where are you going to walk? You're free to walk anywhere you want. But you're going to put one foot right in front of the other. You're going to stick to the narrow little path. You're in a narrow spot. You have no options. But on the other hand, if you come into a broad place, you have choices. You can walk here, you can walk there, you can walk wherever you want. And and this is what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist here is not saying that he gave up his freedoms, his happiness, his choices to follow God. What is he saying? In fact, he's saying the opposite. Because he trusts in God, because he follows God, he has liberty. He has freedom. Because he has bound himself to serve God with his whole heart, he's finally free. Because see, here's the thing. You and I, outside of Christ, are what the Bible calls slaves. Um, We're slaves to fear, slaves to people-pleasing, slaves to worry and doubt and dread and anger and disappointment. But what are we in Christ? In Christ, we are free because we have been set free from our slave master that only wanted to kill us and instead been made alive and servants of Jesus who wants us to not only have life but have it abundantly. And this is what the psalmist says. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in freedom. I shall walk in freedom because I've sought your precepts. That doesn't, that doesn't compute with us, does it? Look also at the language here. It's not just that he's saying he's free. Look at what he says in verse 46. And 47, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. See, not only is he saying he's free, but he's smitten. He's in love. He's actually seeing what life is now, and it is his delight because the law does not give life. The law points to the lawgiver, and because he has been loved by God, he responds in love because he's finally found life and finally found freedom. This is love, this is adoration. The psalmist has found the word of God provides for him the way the world was designed to work. And by meditating on it, by considering it, by making it internal to himself, by pouring over it, by getting it stuck in his head, he has found his deepest and greatest longings of his heart are being met and satisfied here. When you love someone, 
you learn their likes and their dislikes, their must-haves and their can't-stands, because you want to be that person that fulfills all the things that makes them happy and stay away from all the stuff that makes them unhappy. Married people, listen, it's not the flip of that. Do not antagonize your spouse. I don't care how much fun it is, David. Because this is what love does. And the psalmist has said that he has found it. And because he loves God, he does the things that God says is lovely. But how? How does he do that? Because all I've done so far is tell you that you're a wreck, your heart is a terrible cruise director, and that your eyes are constantly distracted. But if you meditate on the word of God, life happens. If I left you here with that sermon, I would have failed you as a pastor because there's actually no gospel in that. There's no good news in that. Here's where I want you to conclude. Look at verse 41. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord. Your salvation according to your promise. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Long before you ever loved God, God loved you. God bound himself to you. God pledged his, and this is what this word steadfast love, if you take it um, and, and, and read it out of the Jesus Storybook Bible, this is how Sally Lloyd-Jones translates God's steadfast love. She translates it as his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love, okay? God's un, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love to you. He saw you in your weakness. He saw you in your helplessness, your lovelessness, and bound himself to you. And because he loved you, he sent Jesus to die for your sins, not just to make you a better person or a nicer person or a more conscientious person, but a new person. This is what Jesus came to do in you. He lived the life that you should have lived and died the death that you deserve to die. And if you believe in him, believe in what he has done and given uh, for you and you give your life to him, he pours out his spirit in you and gives you a new heart, a heart that loves God. God loves what he says is lovely and loves what he loves and does this because he wants you to be free. God desires for you to be free. He wants you to be blessed. He wants you to be happy. He doesn't want to rob life from you, but restore life to you. And the psalmist says, let your steadfast love come to me. He's asking God for help. He recognized that over this entire psalm, not once has he been saying, okay, here's how I'm going to get my life together. He's begging God for help this entire psalm. And now he's saying, remember the promises that you made. Let your steadfast love come to me. Let your help and your faithfulness and your goodness be poured out to me so that I can live. Because here's the thing, friends. Your hope today is not living a good life. You're not good enough. Your hope today is not to have your eyes fixed on holy things enough. You can't actually get there. 
Your hope today is not simply to resolve to be better and kinder and less angry and more tolerant because it's not good enough. Your only hope today is to have the resurrected Jesus change you from the inside out to unite your life to his and through that resurrection to see your affections and your attitudes change as you learn to love the God that loved you first and gave himself for you. See, the discipline of meditation is like getting a song stuck in your head. The good news is you're the song that's stuck in Jesus' head. He thinks about you all the time. Never once are you off his mind. Never once is he distracted. Never once. Why? Because he loves you. And he's inviting you to see that love printed all over the pages of his word. In the scars of his hand and brow, the nail wounds of his feet, in the empty tomb and his risen life. Know that he loves you. And he wants you not to languish, but to live.